All right. If you have your Bibles, please with me now open them to Exodus chapter 20. Today we are continuing in our study of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and we're doing so by looking at the Seventh Commandment. Youth Camp, this is an intense topic, but it is for you students as well as everybody else in this room. God has much grace for us here this morning. Let's begin by reading the first two verses and then jump down to verse 14. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 14, You shall not commit adultery. Amen. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning. Church family, by this point in our study of these Ten Commandments, we we should know very thoroughly that our God hates sin. He hates sin of every kind. All sin, every act of disobedience to God's law is an affront and an offense to our holy and loving God. All sin is bad. Some sin captures the essence or the the sinfulness of sin in a very distinct way. And adultery is one of these sins. And what I mean by that is not that the sin of adultery is a greater sin than other sins that we might commit or that it is the the black spot of Christianity and that if you commit the sin of adultery, you are more in need of God's grace than someone who steals, for example, or who commits murder or who dishonors their parents or who breaks the Sabbath. Any of those sins brings the just and the righteous judgment of our holy God. And God's Word says that if you break one of them, you have, in a sense, failed in all of them. So I do not mean that adultery is a deeper black spot of sinfulness than other areas of sin in our lives. But what I do mean is that adultery captures the sorrow and the distortion of sin in a very specific way. Adultery is any sexual pleasure in body or in mind that is intentionally awakened with someone who is not your lifelong covenanted husband or wife. And in every form, adultery is a clear picture of the betrayal that all sin is before our holy God. And we know this Because God himself uses the picture of adultery to capture all other types of sin against him. God regularly says in his word to Israel that in their worship of false gods and in their worship of idols and in their Sabbath breaking and in their covetousness and pride, they are committing the act of adultery before him. That they as his chosen people are being unfaithful before him. In fact... There is a whole book of our Bibles entitled Hosea where God calls a man to marry a prostitute woman and to experience her ongoing unfaithfulness to him. And God calls him to that so that Hosea and Israel and we today might feel and understand the betrayal of our false worship and our deep sinfulness 
before God in all areas of life. To sin against God in any way is to be in an adulterer before God. And so in this, we, we begin to see why adultery is a big deal. If, if God uses this sin as a description of all sin that is before him, then we must consider what this sin is in greater detail and how we can, by God's grace, run away from it. God hates this sin, but he has grace for those who fail in it. And that actually brings us to our main idea this morning, our main idea for this sermon is that God hates adultery, but gives great grace to adulterers. God hates adultery, but gives great grace to adulterers. And we have three points this morning. Number one, God's hatred of adultery. Number two, our temptation toward adultery. And number three, Jesus' compassion for adulterers. Okay? Let's begin with the first point. Point number one, God's hatred of adultery. Now, one of the things that we must continue to consider as we study the Ten Commandments is that even though each commandment speaks against something, even as each commandment forbids certain things, they are each actually God's way of highlighting and celebrating and protecting that which he loves. So to begin our sermon this morning with the words, God's hatred of, that might seem like a stark way to begin. And it might even seem to paint a picture of God as being a, a curmudgeon of a God who gets annoyed with us in our sin. Like he is a God who is only against things. But Redeemer family, in reality, that is the opposite of what is happening in all of these Ten Commandments. Throughout these commandments, God does forbid things, but not because he is against first, but rather because he is so much for. He is for true worship. He is for us being a people of rest. He is for an ordered society and the honoring of good authority. He is for the sanctity and the protection of all human life. And this morning, through the seventh commandment, he's not just against adultery he is for something. Listen, our faithful and loving God is for covenantal faithfulness in marriage. And in order to understand this, we must see how much he is, in fact, pro-marriage. Now, that, that is not to say that, that marriage is the ultimate expression of humanity. Listen, if you are single here, please, please do not think that you are in some way less a reflection of God's good design. That's not true at all. Listen, Jesus, our very Lord and Savior and the ultimate and perfect expression of humanity, he was never married. It seems like Paul himself, the leader of the New Testament church, was never married. And so to highlight marriage here this morning is not to throw shade on your singleness. But it is to say that marriage is very near to God's heart. It just is. Marriage is of God and it is for God. He created it. He instituted it. And he desires to protect it at all costs. Why? Well, primarily because marriage is one of the clearest earthly pictures of God's love for his people. 
right? Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that, that marriage is a real-life living picture. It's a, it's a reflection of God's love for the church. Husbands are to love and sacrifice for their wives in the same way that Jesus laid down his life for the church. And Ephesians 5 says that the wife is to love and support and honor her husband in the same way that the church is to love and serve her Savior. This is the picture that marriage is, and it is beautiful to behold. And not just that, but marriage is also so beautiful to God because of its, its covenantal language and nature. The God that we worship this morning is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He commits himself to his people and he promises to never leave them nor forsake them. He promises that he will not break his covenant with them. And, and in Malachi chapter 2, it actually speaks of marriage as something that we enter into by covenant in a very similar way. Listen, this is why weddings are so important. That's why they're so important. I don't really care whether you have a huge and lavish wedding or if you get married in the backyard with a few friends. God says that if we enter into marriage, we are entering in, if we enter into marriage, we're entering in by covenant. And biblically speaking, a covenant is a, a significant, a, a bind, a permanent thing. We must not take these things lightly. And so, in all of this, we see that God's hatred of adultery is because he is for other things. He's for marriage. He is for covenantal faithfulness and purity. He's for these things because he knows that covenantal faithfulness and relational and sexual intimacy and devotion are, are beautiful and they are good and they are for our joy as his people. Listen, marriage is, is not just good because it is a pragmatic picture or reflection of God's love for us. No, marriage is good because God has designed it to be the source of unbelievable joy and satisfaction in this life. Sexual intimacy, specifically, is not, not just for procreation, nor is it something dirty that Christians need to run away from. It's not something that Christians should not think about or talk about. Sexual intimacy between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage is a, a beautiful and happy and satisfying thing. God has made it so. By God's design, there's simply nothing like the sexual intimacy of a husband and a wife in marriage. It speaks of oneness. It speaks of unity. It speaks of intimacy. And, and those are things that God himself desires to have with us as well. Not in a strangely erotic way, but in an intimate and close and personal way. And it is to be exclusively with our spouse, just as our relationship with him is to be exclusive. We must not sleep with other people, just as we must not worship other gods. And so in all of this, we see what God is for, which is why he says in verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. Not because he doesn't want us to have fun, but because he is for one of the greatest goods and biggest blessings in our life. Our God is pro-fun. He's pro-blessing. He's pro-happiness and joy. And as the all-wise God, he simply knows 
that we will find the greatest satisfaction in our sexuality when we submit it to his design and purpose and law. Adultery and all forms of sexual immorality is unfaithfulness to God himself. It, it cheapens our relationship with him and it, it defaces one of the most beautiful gifts that he has given in this world. Friends, have you seen any of the videos that are out there about people who are opposing or, or, or coming against certain ideas and so they go into a famous museum or something and they sneak up to the front of the line and they throw food on the beautiful painting or the statue or they spray paint things like canned soup all over the painting or, or have you seen the video of the young man? Uh, who took a key and, and, and carved his name into the historical Colosseum. I think he said he didn't know that it was historical. Kind of hard to believe. Kind of a big mistake. Not the best decision he's made. But friends, listen, adultery is like those things. To commit adultery is to throw canned soup onto one of God's greatest designs and gifts. It is to take a beautiful and timeless gift of God that he designed to be a reflection of who he is. And it's to take our key and try to scratch our name into it as if our names and our desires are what is important rather than his good design and grace. Oh my. God hates adultery because of how it distorts and defaces one of his greatest designs, which is supposed to bring us great joy. And not only all of that, but God hates adultery because it straight up does unspeakable harm to his people. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. Listen, he who does it destroys himself. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The punishment is so severe because of the horrific damage and chaos that adultery does in our lives and in our relationship. God hates adultery because it destroys his people. Church, all of this is why God has such hatred for this sin. John Frame describes adultery as covenantal treason. And so we too should hate adultery. Not only because of the damage that it will do in our lives and in our relationships, but also because it is covenantal treason against God himself. Adultery is at its core a rejection of his redeeming grace. That brings us to our second point. Point number two, our temptation toward adultery. Here's a question for you Hamilton fans out there. How many adulterous relationships did Alexander Hamilton have? Some historians would say one, the publicly scandalous one with Mariah Reynolds and her blackmailing husband. Others would say two, because they assume that Hamilton slept with his sister-in-law, Angelica Schuyler. And others would say maybe one and a half, because though they don't think that he slept with Angelica, they can't argue with the fact that there was substantial correspondence between Hamilton and Angelica that was emotionally intimate and greatly flirtatious. And so how many adulterous relationships he had really depends on how you define adultery. But friends, as men and women who believe in 
this book and who believe that this book is an authority in our lives, it would seem that we would have to hold the perspective that Hamilton had not one nor one and a half, but at least two adulterous relationships. Why? Because adultery, as defined by God's word, is much more than just sleeping with someone who is not your wife. Adultery, most specifically, is the breaking of the marriage covenant by sleeping with someone else's spouse. But but as we have seen in all of the Ten Commandments, what is commanded here is a foundational principle that also supports and encapsulates other sin categories as well. Even though verse 14 simply says, thou shalt not commit adultery, God's word consistently expands that category to speak of all forms of sexual immorality. And listen, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, expands it even farther to speak of not just physical immorality, but immoral thoughts in our minds as well. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting the seventh commandment. But then he says, I say to you, That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says that adultery is much, much more than just the physical act of sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. Jesus says that adultery is a matter that starts from within. And listen, as Jesus expands that definition, church family all of us, young and old alike, should begin to lean forward in our seats to pay attention. Because if Jesus says that the seventh commandment applies to even our thoughts, then then certainly it applies to every type of sexual immorality in between. God's word speaks not only against sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. No, God's hatred of adultery, according to his word, includes many other forms of sexual and emotional sin as well. Look at Romans 1 and the list of vices. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 and the list of sins. Look at Colossians chapter 3. And according to Matthew chapter 5, all of that includes our thoughts as well. What is very clear is that God's hatred of adultery is a hatred for all sexual sin. And, And as we see that, we begin to realize that every one of us is guilty in one form or another. And that we should be very careful to not stereotype any one type of sexual sin as more severe or more in need of God's grace than all the others. We are all sexually broken in some way and we're all in need of God's grace in this area of life. Now when Jesus says that it's about our minds and our thoughts, does that mean that to have even a thought about how beautiful or handsome a person is, is inherently a sin against God? No, that's not what it means. God created beauty, and so it's not inappropriate to notice that a woman is beautiful or that a man is handsome. In fact, there are many times in Scripture when a man or a woman is said to be beautiful or handsome in appearance, and they do it, Scripture does it, in an appropriate and non-lustful kind of way. According to God's Word, it's what we do with those thoughts. Matthew 5 says that to look with lustful intent is equivalent to adultery. I believe it was John Frame who helps us to define lust in this way. He says, lust 
is specifically the desire to engage in sexual acts that are contrary to God's law. That is the line that, we sh- that shouldn't be crossed. Eve was not wrong to believe that the forbidden fruit was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Doubtless, the fruit was all these things, and it was not wrong for Eve, even under Satan's influence, to take notice of them. But at some point, her appreciation of the fruit's natural qualities slipped into something else, a desire to take that fruit in defiance of God's law. And so if that's what lust is, which we know it is from Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, then church, who of us should not feel conviction about these things today? The application of this expands to so many areas of our lives. Listen to how Phil Reichen speaks about these things and applies them. He says, he says, the seventh commandment thus forbids a married man to flirt with a woman who is not his wife or a single man to get close to someone else's wife. The commandment also forbids a married woman to seek emotional support from some other man, whether at work or at church or in an internet chat room. To put things more positively, he says, the seventh commandment requires husbands and wives to nurture their love for one another emotionally and spiritually as well as sexually. That's what the seventh commandment is for and against. Redeemer family, listen. According to God's holy and authoritative word, we must not look at those who are not our spouse with lustful intents. We must not look at pornography or any movie or show that tempts us needlessly in this way. We must not read books that engage our hearts or imaginations with lustful desires. We we must not cultivate emotional relationships with men and women who are not our spouse because we think that we can find something with them that is lacking in our husband or wife. We, We must not listen. We must not fool around sexually with people outside of the marriage covenant. These are the things that God's law forbids, and it does so because God wants us to celebrate His beautiful design and to delight in His ways, to make much of covenantal love and faithfulness, to to not be like the world that we live in, which has cheapened all these things to simply matters of animal instinct and desire. No, God wants all of life to be worshipped to Him, even our sexuality, even our purity. Oh, Redeemer family, to be a pure church, as weak as you feel this morning, as weak as we all are, as as tempted as we are on a daily basis, to be a pure church is to be a church that honors Jesus as Lord, as God, and as King over our lives. It celebrates the fact that according to verses 1 and 2 in our text today, He has brought us out of the house of slavery, out of the house of our own sexual impurity, and He has redeemed us and made us whole. Listen, according to this text and this chapter, our purity and our pursuit of purity is not what establishes our relationship with Jesus. He's loved us despite our failings. Our purity is to flow from our relationship with Jesus. I have a pastor friend who 
who told me about how he found out about an adulterous relationship that was happening between two church members in his local church. And as he looked into the the situation, he said to someone who was involved in it, I I just had no idea. And that person kind of looked at him with a smirk and said, oh, pastor, you don't have any idea. That person said, Pastor, there is an underground world of immorality in this church. Physical adultery, emotional adultery, fornication of different kinds. And and my friend shared with me how he came to discover over time that many in his church had so lost sight of the gospel, they'd so forgotten or never truly understood what Jesus had done for them that they had wandered into their own passions and desires. They They were gratifying their flesh rather than being led by the Spirit. Oh, Redeemer Fellowship family, may we never forget what has been done for us through Jesus Christ. May we never wander from the gospel. To be a pure church is to be a gospel-centered church. To be a gospel-centered church is to be a pure church. It is to celebrate all that he is and all that he has done for us and how undeserving we are. Let us not commit covenantal treason against the redemptive grace of our God. To be a pure church is to be grateful and humble before the grace of Jesus Christ. But it is so easy to forget, isn't it? Because our passions in our flesh are so strong, it's easy to forget, which is why we must weekly remember the great things that he has done for us. And that brings us to our third point. Point number three, well, point number one, God's hatred of adultery. Point number two, our temptation toward adultery. And point number three, Jesus' compassion for adulterers. Isn't it true that sexual sin feels particularly dirty? doesn't it? More than the sin of gossip, more than getting angry, more than selfishness or covetousness, sexual sin feels particularly defiling. The Apostle Paul actually says that sexual sin is a sin against our own bodies, and so we naturally feel shame in a particular way about these things. But listen, it is because of this reality that we must remember Jesus together. Jesus has great compassion for sexually broken people. He knows the shame that you feel this morning. He sees how dirty you are. He is aware of the guilt that you are bearing. And church family, he sees that in all of us, every one of us in this room, every single one of us is worthy of God's judgment for our adulterous hearts. It would be right for God to cast us out. But that is not what God has done. We must remember Jesus. Listen, some of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus in the Gospels are when He is compassionately and graciously caring for and loving those who have been caught in their sin and specifically their sexual sin. In Luke chapter 7, Luke tells the story of when Jesus is eating at one of the Pharisee houses 
So Jesus is spending some time with the religious elite and the religious clean of his day. And while he's eating a meal with them, it says that a a woman comes in. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 37, it says that she was a sinner, meaning that she was sexually unclean and promiscuous. And it says that she learned that Jesus was in that place, reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And so she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Ointment was a sign of favor and blessing. It was very expensive. And it says that she began to weep. And then she began to wet his feet with her tears and and to wipe them with her hair. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Friends, what an act of worship this moment is. On her knees, letting her hair down and her tears fall and wiping and kissing her feet and giving herself to this Jesus. But do you know what the Pharisees saw? They only saw her sin. They only saw her uncleanness. They actually said, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him now. She is a sinner. Church, there are some of you here today who are saying that about yourselves. If only Joel knew, if only this church knew who I was and the sins that I have committed, oh, that I was such a sinner. They would cast me out. They wouldn't let me through the doors. And honestly, that is how sexual sin makes every one of us feel. No matter how great or small our sexual sin heaps shame upon us. And it should, in a sense, make us feel unworthy to come into his presence or unable to enjoy his grace. But this woman in Luke chapter 7, she saw who Jesus truly was. She saw that he was the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. She saw his grace and mercy and so she came. She came and when the religious leaders complained, Jesus said, hold up, hold up. I'm going to tell you a story. And he told a story about a debt collector and a few people who were stuck in debt. And he says in that story, How someone, let's say, who has $150,000 worth of debt is going to be much more grateful than the one for being forgiven of their debt than the one who has merely $15 of debt. And then he turns to the Pharisees and he says, look at this woman. He said, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But listen... He who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Listen, she wasn't buying her salvation with her tears. She wasn't purchasing her forgiveness with that ointment. No, she was worshiping the one who had all the grace and mercy that she needed for her many sins, for her lifetime of sins. She knew She knew, church, this Jesus says, come. 
Come with your baggage. Come with your shame. Come with your weakness. She knew that this Jesus has compassion for sexually broken sinners like her. She knew that this Jesus was not going to turn away her away for, from her repentant heart. She knew the compassionate heart of Jesus for adulterers like her and adulterers like you and me. That phrase where Jesus says, I, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. That, that is such a powerful verse. Listen, you might be here this morning and you might have a perspective of the people around you here that we're so happy and we sing so loudly and we lift our hands so happily and joyfully because we're nearly perfect people. Like, we're not really that sinful. We're not sinful like you are. We've never committed those crazy sins. Our, our life is easy, and we don't struggle in the same ways that you do. Like, we're singing, oh, praise the name of Jesus, because we're not like them over there. Listen, that is a lie. We sing, and we dance, and we lift our hands in worship, and we weep with joy, not because we're perfect, but because our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. We sing because he who has been forgiven little loves little. And that's none of us here. But he who has been forgiven much loves much. And that's every single one of us in this room. And so church family, the question is, how do we love Jesus much? Well, we, sing him, we love him by singing his praises. And by calling to mind that our identity is not in our past sexual sins and failures and mistakes. We call to mind that he has washed us clean, that we have been made whole, and that our lives are redeemed by his grace. If you are a non-Christian here today, and you have a past of sexual sin and brokenness, it is as easy as this. Look to Jesus. Put your faith in the work that he did on that cross for you, and your life will be washed clean in the sight of the living God. Forever. Your sins will not be held against you. Church, we love much with acts of devotion and worship and obedience. The woman in Luke 7 gave much to Jesus. She, in a sense, gave her dignity and her identity. She gave her belonging. She gave greatly, and so should we. Church, we love much through our refusal to forget God's grace in our lives through Jesus Christ. We love him much by repenting of areas of sexual sin that have been hid in the dark for too long. Listen, Christian, if that's you, find someone today and confess your sins to them and ask for their care and accountability and ask them to remind you of God's love for you. We should love much by being men and women who turn away from porn and ask for accountability. We should love him much by turning away from any hint of adulterous sin in our lives. Listen, have you been flirtatious with that man at work? Have you been texting with too much familiarity that woman from the gym? Have you opened your heart to someone who is not your spouse in too deep of a way? Redeemer family, we must run away. And, and we should love him much by doing all of this with our eyes fixed 
on Jesus. Purity in the Christian life is not just a list of rules. Though that is sometimes helpful and appropriate. Sometimes it's helpful to get rid of your phone or to have parental controls or filters on your computer to keep you safe. Sometimes it's helpful to say that for the sake of purity and for honoring Christ, you're not going to go to that place ever again and you're going to cut off that relationship entirely. Rules are good and we should establish them in our lives whenever possible and whenever helpful. We as pastors refuse to meet alone with women that are not our wife if there is not someone else in the building when we do counseling. That's just a wise thing to do. Rules are good, but we love much by having our rules be fueled by our affections for Jesus and what he has already done. We love Jesus this much, amen? We are this thankful for how he has done what we could not do. That, that we are so willing and eager to be transformed by his grace and mercy. Jesus said to the woman, go in peace. And in response to his great grace for us, church family, we should do the same. God hates adultery, but he has extraordinary grace for adulterers. And that's you and me. Let's pray.